Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A special thank you to our sponsor, Equithrive. This one goes out to all the horses with the crusty necks, fleshy backs, and girthy middles. The horses who gain a few extra pounds simply by breathing air. The easy keepers on limited pastures. The folks at Equithrive know there is nothing easy about easy keepers. That's why they have formulated products just for you. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support, all in one easy to feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com. I would say as a hoof care provider, one of the most difficult and frustrating issues that I've had to deal with is DSLD or degenerative suspensory ligament desmitis. These horses often present with drop fetlocks and a lot of pain behind that will continue to get worse and degenerate until they have to retire or be euthanized. I've been wanting to do a podcast episode about this for a very long time, but hadn't found anyone who would be interested in doing an in-depth interview or found anyone who really knew enough about it to answer questions on the topic. I came across Dr. Sabrina Brownst of the Comparative Orthopedic Research Lab at the University of Wisconsin, and she has done extensive research into ligament and tendon injury and tendon repair and has started focusing research projects specifically on DSLD and looking at predictive diagnostics as well as treatments that can help these horses. I reached out to her and was so excited when she was willing to chat with me on this topic. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey to large animal medicine and your interest in DSLD? Well, my journey to veterinary medicine, um, as most people probably, I was as a kid had animals and got interested in veterinary medicine when I was very, very young. We grew up with a lot of animals. So we had dogs, I had bunnies, um, I had horses. And so that piqued my interest in the profession of veterinary medicine. I am Dutch, so I grew up in the Netherlands, uh, in Europe, and I went to vet school in Utrecht. And during my time in Utrecht, I really got into the large animal or horse part of veterinary medicine compared to the small animal. So I, I kind of knew that I wanted to do that. So I looked into possibilities of extending that knowledge somehow um, and gaining knowledge in that field in, in, in equine. And I ended up coming to the U.S. for all my postgraduate training. So I did an internship at Mississippi State, did a residency in surgery at Purdue University. And through a couple of other universities, I ended up here in the University of Wisconsin in Madison to teach and become a professor in surgery, large animal surgery and equine sports medicine and rehabilitation. So yeah, I'm double boarded. Um, I got all those two diplomat uh, degrees and then a PhD and a master's that I got on the way. And my 
PhD was in tendon, tendon rehabilitation, different ways of looking in tendon. I did my PhD in elastography, so how to use that in rehabbing tendons in veterinary medicine. And one of my clients who had Peruvian horses as a breed, and he was breeding those, knew about the DSLD, and I did not at that time, and said, hey, you know, your interest is in tendons, tendon physiology, and rehabbing them, and I have horses that have a disease that frequently happens in them. I'd like to see if we can get together and see if we can make some headway in finding out what's what's wrong. And the nice part was that Klein was an orthopedic surgeon at uh, in Chicago at Rush, and we got together and did some projects together. And he is no longer with us, but in his memory, I still do the research, and um, I really got the bug, so to speak. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like you've done a lot of work in this area, for sure. <laughs> I think I was trying to look back for this interview and thought, you know, when did it start? And I think it's like 2009, 2010 that I got started with my clients. And it's been hard to get grand money to to look into this, right? Because DSLD in, in, in horses, it's just a small disease, right? Who's interested in that? But we found out, and that it was through my connections at Rush as well, that there is tendinopathy in humans, especially, especially if you look at the Achilles uh, tendon, is very similar to what happens in DSLD. So the horse could potentially be a model for that as well. And so once we made that connection and looked at that, that there's a lot of things in DSLD that are similar in, in tendon disease in humans, that's when you say, hey, you know, now I got a bigger audience and now I have more possibilities to get funding for research. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you know, this is a big topic, but just to kind of start at the very basics, for those who may have not encountered this or, or know what it is, can you tell us a little bit about what DSLD is and kind of anything we know about the pathological process or anything we know about it up to this point in horses? Yeah. So DSLD stands for degenerative suspensory ligament dysmitis. There are some articles in the research that also refer to it as ESPA, and that stands for equine systemic proteoglycan accumulation. That definition has not gotten off, and not a lot of people know what that is if you talk about it. They know what DSLD is. And one of the reasons I think is has to do something with the pathogenesis. We still don't know exactly what is causing DSLD, right? There's still things that we we don't know. My personal interest has always been that I think there is a genetic component, but there also is an environmental component. We just have to figure out how much genetic, how much environmental. And then if we look at the environmental, what exactly are the risk factors, which we don't know yet. There's certain things that we, we need to do more research in, but we'll, we'll touch on that in a little bit. But that has always been my interest. And so ESPA, we, we found out there is some research from the University of Georgia that there is a proteoglycan accumulation in the tendons of horses that are affected with DSLD. However, I don't think that is the cause. And that is a result of injury to that. And then you get the formation of that proteoglycan. So you get more of it because certain pathways are disturbed. And that's also what we see in human medicine. 
So humans tend to have that same situation. They get more protein glycans because of the injury that occurs. So I think that's also a reason that that term maybe not has gotten so much traction. Um, so we don't think that is the cause, but it's more, it's a, it, it's what happened to a tendon that is injured. Interesting. So, and when you look at some of the research that came out of Georgia a little later, when they look at certain factors, they said they couldn't, there's certain factors that they couldn't re- replicate that. And we have done our latest paper that came out. We looked at certain genes, you know, and we said, no, proteoglycons, that gene, you know, in the proteoglycon genes, they are not elevated. So we think it's more that, again, it's not a cause. It's more a result of the injury. So more and more, the DSLD sticks still, and the ESP has gotten a little bit more to the background. Okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, I I always thought it was because DSLD, you know, I thought that the term was starting to change because they were wondering, and you can correct me, I actually don't know. I heard it was because they were wondering if it was more than just like dropped fetlocks, like it might have been a more systemic issue. But is that not like, do you see other symptoms other than these fetlock issues? So I do not. And here's the thing. There's there's conflicting papers on that. There's a paper that came out of Wisconsin with the Rush people. And there's a paper from Georgia. And I I do not see that. So I have not seen others. And I ultrasound all the tendons, usually in, in that horse. And we do not see that. I don't see any changes in those. Okay. And so there are conflicting papers about that as well, that others have not seen that in the heart or in the sclera, you know, in the eye and all of that. So not to say we could look more further into that, but I'm not so convinced that it is truly systemic, but, and which we'll talk a little later, you know, in our lab, when we look at things, there are genes that we've looked into that we've identified that have to do with this systemic things. So systemic turnover of connective tissue and all that stuff. But the reason still is why in the suspensory ligament and not in the other connective tissue in the body, right? That is still the question that I have that I can't answer. And I think part of that is coming from environments. And once we get to that part in our podcast, we will talk about that. But I think, and I'll tell you, and I reached what we've shown, the environment is a big part of that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, as a hoof care provider, I see all kinds of horses. And, you know, once I come up to a horse that looks like it has these like low dropped fetlocks, and a lot of times they end up being diagnosed with DSLD, I only see it just get worse and worse until this horse is just like not comfortable, not able to hold up right. its hind legs for trimming. Um, right. So is there anything that we can do to slow the progression of that or help with comfort? Have there been good treatments that have come out? Well, I think if you go back to the symptoms, right, you say, I think DSLD gets misdiagnosed a lot of times. I, you know, there's a lot of things that people, as they see certain breeds, like we know the Peruvian breed, the Pasifino, there's definitely warm bloods, little moderate risk of the Arabian and the Lusitanos, no risk or very, very, very low risks are like ponies and draft horses, right? So if we look at certain breeds, as soon as we see a certain breed and they have suspensory issues and say it's a Peruvian or say it's a warm blood or say it's a, a Pasifino, we're like, oh, it's DSLD. And I think a lot of it gets misdiagnosed. I think you have to be really, really careful just putting a label on a breed. Okay. Giving a breed a bad name as well. And that was hard for us because we work together with the Peruvian Horse Association and they've been very good to us. And uh, we work really good with those owners and we do a lot together to make sure that we advance research, but not do not give the breed a bad name. Right. right. That's not 
goal. My goal is to find an answer for them so they can actually make a stronger breed. And the Peruvian Paso and the Peruvian horse, yes, you might see maybe a little bit more there, but they're not the only breed. It's up and coming in the warm blood breed as well. And there's certain families in the Peruvian horse, but also in the warm blood that I have noticed that are more see they see we see dsld more in them than in other families so there is a genetic irritability in that and so the the, the things is you know i know there's a publication from Mero from a long time ago like clinically what you can look at you know like you palpate the ligament for pain you make sure that it's enlarged you know there has to be a lameness associated with it then you get abnormal flexion of the fetlock when you stress it you know you get the dropped appearance um, you need to do an ultrasound exam and make sure there's certain measurements that you look at that and look at the whole uh, suspensory compared also to the other attendants to make sure because right now there is no diagnostic test that can say yes or no you the horse has it um there is none so and that makes it harder there has been the university of georgia for a while would do nuclear ligament testing to see and that will tell you if your horse had dslb so that was something that you can be do before the horse was euthanized before the horse had to die um, to say yes, it's DSLV or not. However, they no longer do that anymore because it was not as accurate as they thought it was. Oh, wow. And that, again, they looked at the proteoglycan content. And again, that's where I came back and say, you know, hey, is that truly the cause or is it just a sign of injury? Right. And that is the debate, still is the debate amongst people with that do research in DSLV. So they do not no longer do that test. So there is no test anymore. Oh, we wow. have the prediction test for the Peruvian horse in our lab, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but there is no diagnostic test that you can do if you suspect the horse is DSLD and say, yep, it is DSLD, which is frustrating because that's what we would like. We've got all these tests for all these other diseases, and we don't have that. So the thing that you have is you have the history, which is very, very important because a lot of times these horses have no injury to the to their there's no no stripping or anything or a true injury that they can say pinpoint it to sometimes they just gradually happen and it's just degenerative changes to the suspensory so the history is important is if it's just one leg it's usually probably not dsld it's usually multiple legs affected one may be more than the other but again, it's a multiple limb disease. So if you put all that together and you look at all of that and especially do an ultrasound exam, and then if you're not sure, you know, because you said your ultrasound exam shows yes, but you have no clinical signs, then come back and look at that horse a couple of months later because things might change. Or I have clinical signs and my ultrasound exam shows, well, there's not a lot of changes there. So I don't know if it is DLCD or not. You know, it could be something else come back and follow that horse because things might become more clear in a couple of months. Yeah. Right. So I, so I think it's, it's tough to diagnose DSLD and there's a label that gets put on a lot of horses because of their breed, but you have to be very careful with that and you have to do really good clinical examinations to, to, to put that label on something. And so, and I want to go back to the treatments in a little bit, but when you're talking about these diagnostics, are there any, you know, prospects for diagnostics for the future in 
trying to find out if they can determine for sure if that's the diagnosis? Yeah. So, and and this is something that I'm I'm looking at. So I like I told you, I did my PhD in elastography, and it's a program here. There's multiple elastographies out there. I have a program that was developed here in the med school at the University of Wisconsin, and I'm looking into to see if I can look and see and use that illustography program to diagnose it quicker, right? So looking at different severities of DSLD, use that program and say, yep, this is an injury of the suspensory and this is not an injury to the suspensory. And then also to say, look, I have an injury of a suspensory, but it's only one leg and it's just a proximal suspensory desmitis or just a branch that got pulled, you know, which the draw sources sometimes have. And if it's DSLD, is there a difference in the elastography between those two as well? So there, there's research that I'd like to do and look into that and see if that could maybe help us in the diagnosis as a diagnostic tool. Okay, wow. And, and you mentioned the Peruvians that you said that there might be some kind of uh test to determine if they might develop it? Yes. So what we have looked in, we have our, most of our research right now is in the Peruvian horse. We have a whole data bank. We, we ask people if they know that it's DSLD. We work with our veterinarians. We have a very specific list of questions, photos that they need to take, ultrasound exams that we'd like them to do with their vet and all that. And we collect uh, DNA from those. And they're all in a big data bank here. And we have most of them the Peruvian horse because we work with the Peruvian Horse Association. So we looked at the Peruvian horse and said, okay, is there anything in the Peruvian horse in their DNA or in the, is it, is it a, a genetic disease or more environmental, you know, that we can look and when we kind of figure out that or, or have an idea, then we can look at other breeds. So what we found in the Peruvian that there is a heritability factor and it's about 0.25. So that means there's 25% of that disease is in the genes, but 75% is due to environmental factors. So it is a complex disease. It's not a Mendelian disease like some of these diseases in horses, like you have it or you don't, right? This is, it's a complex disease. So it means that there are multiple genes that have to work together for you to get this disease. And some can have more influence than others. So that makes it harder for us to develop a test because it could be that you have gene A and B, but not C. And A and B does give DSLD, but if you have C, you get it very severely, right? So how that mixture is and how they work together, we haven't figured that out yet. And if we look into that further, maybe there's also a route that we can say, hey, this is a treatment option to slow it down or maybe in the future even reverse it, right? I don't know if that's possible, but those are all things that we, for future things that can we slow it down? Can we reverse it? Can we stop it? You know, we don't know. And that that is something that, who knows, I'm, I might get to that in my lifetime. I might not. Yeah. So what we found is, so 25% is due to genes. 75% is environmental. So now we are looking, because we have a huge bunch of questionnaires that we gave these people. Okay, then what in the environment is the common denominator? Is it diet? Is it when do you start training them? Is it the footing? Um, Is it certain medications that you have been on? Um, You know, uh, we don't know. Is it it supplements or, you know, we're chewing you know, we, we don't know. Uh, confirmation. I think confirmation 
has a as a as a something to do with it because we know horses that have very straight legged, they put more strain on their t- suspensory ligament naturally because of biomechanics. So, and we know that if the fat lock drops in these horses with Reprovian Passos and on any other breeds, they have a more straight legged conformation that they develop. Is the angle of the pastern, the length of the pastern, is that has anything to do with it? So these are things that we're looking at to say, okay, these are the horses that do not have it. These are the horses that do have it. What is environmental very common in these horses? Could they be risk factors? And we don't know. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. I feel like it's a lot like, you know, the new developments you're talking about are so much different than what I've learned about this, which is great because I think that information needs to be out there so that people aren't, you know, misinformed about it. Right. And so one of the things that they looked at is Cushing's disease in horses, right? Or PPID. They like the insulin resistance. So are these horses at more risk? There are definitely some horses that we've had that have DSLD and that have Cushing's. And there are papers out there from Vienna that say, well, there is, they looked and said horses that have high, have Cushing's and in, in humans or had high dose of steroids, they have degenerative changes to their suspensory. They didn't name it DSLE, but they said there are changes in suspensory ligaments with horses that have been on steroids or are exposed to steroids for a longer time. And that's also seen in humans. So again, for me, that is an, 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 something to look into. Is a horse having Cushing's a risk factor? Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's great that there's, there's more research in this because it's something that I have felt incredibly helpless when I come to a horse that has really dropped fetlocks and they're so uncomfortable. And I feel like, how can I help? You know, what's the best thing that I can do to make this right. horse more comfortable? A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. And, and are right. there, have you found treatments or, you know, medication, supplements, anything like that, that seems to help these cases with their comfort? Well, a lot of them is to, it's, it's more about keeping, keeping them comfortable, right? We know DSLD is a progressive disease. We have no way of reversing it. And can we slow it down? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. So it's all about making the horse comfortable, and what we have seen is that exercise is a big part, right? Do we stall rest these horses? Do we do some exercise with it? So I am not, we've learned over the years that just stall rest and stall confinement is not the way to go. So you do have to give these horses that are mild to moderately effective. Of course, the comfort level of your horse has to be good. And it's something definitely to check with your veterinarian before you institute an exercise program. 
But some kind of exercise, there's a paper out there from the University of Louisiana, and they they looked at horses that were mild and moderately affected with uh, DSLD, and they exercised them. And they had a 30 minutes a day, and it was uh, every other day. And so what they looked at is if they exercise these horses, these horses actually, their ultrasound exams became better. The, the fiber pattern became better. It actually helped them a little. Wow. The angle of the fetlock didn't change, but they definitely saw that it was beneficial. So knowing that and reading that is stall rest is out, but having some light exercises for these horses is beneficial to them to keep the healing going and keep the deterioration from slowing down. The question then is, what is light exercise? And that's something that I think is best that every horse is a different individual and you cater that to that individual horse when you look at it and when you've done the clinical exam and you discuss that with your veterinarian. So some kind of exercise, either that being turnout or light riding or anything, whatever that is for your horse is beneficial. So that's one thing that we've learned over the years. The other thing is pain medication, right? And that can be Butte, Banamine, Acriox. That, again, be very careful with that because, you know, the more pain medication they have, the better they will feel and the more they will do. So they, you could also do too much then for the horse. That you're giving them so much pain relief um, that they actually feel so good and they're doing more damage. They're injuring that suspensory more. So it's a very fine line that you want to keep them comfortable but not too comfortable that they don't feel some of the pain and, you know, they are still restricted in their exercise and it's light. So plus you have to think about all the side effects if you give medication for a long time. Right. So again, you discuss that with your veterinarian and say, maybe it's not an everyday kind of pain medication. Maybe it's an every other day or every third day, depending on how comfort the comfort level of your horse is. So you cater that again to the individual horse. Hoof care, important, since you are, we're talking to the Humble Hoof podcast. <laughs> so hoof care is very important. And one of the main things is balancing the hoof, side to side, back to front. That is going to do so much for that horse that you get that correct and have good footing, not deep footing, you know, like that the whole hoof sticks into that. No, you need some light footing. Uh, you don't want the more deeper the footing is, the more stress you're going to put on those tendons and ligaments. So you want to make sure that you don't go into deep footing when you ride. And then in really severe cases, some shoeing changes, like shoeings, bar shoes, egg bar shoes with extended heels um, have done well. They also help with the uh, angle of the fetlock. And in very severe cases, what they've done as well is put a wedge in on the heel that gives that comfort immediately for those horses. And then as the horse gets more comfortable and with pain medication and all of that, you see the comfort level changing. You let the wedge gradually go down and the horse might always need a little wedge or may, might get away then with no wedge. But wedging up that heel uh, with a good support shoe uh, does a lot of things in very severe cases for immediate pain relief. That's so interesting, too, because obviously, you know, I've wondered about that because I've heard people say that wedging has helped in some of these cases. And I've always thought that wedging puts more strain on the suspensory ligaments. Is well, it depends, on, uh, depends on, again, the so they don't leave it on forever. Right. Right. So it is. So it doesn't always. And it depends also on the degree of wedge. 
and you have to look at the horse's foot, but you don't leave that wedge on forever. So the wedge is just temporarily and gradually you take it back down. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. I mean, that's so interesting and it's, it's always great to learn new things because you know, the goal is the comfort of the horse, you know, <laughs> so. and there are tons of other things, right? People use regenerative medicine, uh, people use laser, uh, magnetic therapy, you know, all of that shockwave treatments. I'm not saying that an extra to keep the comfort level of the horse really nice. I wouldn't exclude it. But you know, you have to think about we know it's a progressive disease. But if you want to do laser, if you want to do, you know, magnetic magnetic therapy, I am not against it. Acupuncture, right? That does a lot uh, for pain, for comfort. So regenerative medicine, well, we know that for other tendons and ligaments, it does help. Do we know, does, is it beneficial for DSLD? I have not used it myself on DSLD cases. Is it something that we could ha- you know, work with and could it slow the progression down or have some kind of advantages to it? I don't know. And I guess research you know, in that kind of field will maybe tell us more. So we know it helps and it can be beneficial in, in other uh, ligament and tendon injuries. But for DSLD, I don't know. I don't have the, the answer to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, even just the information you've shared is so helpful. And I've, you know, I have some things that I want to try now because of this conversation. So that's awesome. Um, and, you know, I think those are the the main questions that I had for this. But do you have any tips for horse owners or hoof care providers or, you know, any equine professional that's interested in learning more about management or tips to keep these horses comfortable day to day, anything that we might've skipped out? Well, on? you know, supplements is always a big question that I get asked. I, we know MSM is, it can help horses. I don't know if there are any other supplements out there. Do you know if you have a tendon supplement for tendon healing and tendon repair, I think that a horse could benefit from that. But again, every horse is an individual and, you know, not every horse will respond as you would like. And that's something that a lot of people, you need to, to keep in mind. It's the same with humans, right? Every horse will react different. What works for your horse might not work for your friend's horse. And so that's why I think a good veterinary exam, a good clinical exam to make sure that you're diagnosing it correctly and then cater the treatment to that specific horse, I think is very, very important. And so working with your veterinarian as a team, I think is very, very important. I get a lot of veterinarians emailing me. I get owners emailing me that want to be part of our study. Um, no problem. I've had looked at, you know, ultrasound images for other veterinarians and said, you know, give them my two cents on them or help them. So, you know, I, 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 I do this quite, quite frequently and I'm, I'm always happy to do that. The one thing, though, I would like to let people know and is that... What we set out to do in our research is, you know, we one of the things that you want to do is we need to make sure that if a horse is at higher risk of this disease, since we don't have a cure and we have a hard time slowing it down and it's such a devastating disease, can we screen horses and then make sure that we implement that screening maybe in our breeding, right? Right. So what we have done right now at the University of Wisconsin, we have developed a risk prediction test for the Peruvian horse. So we can predict with 90% accuracy if a Peruvian horse or particular Peruvian horse is at high genetic risk of developing DSLD or not. We only have it for the Peruvian horse right now. And in the future, we would like to look at other breeds. But that is a test that is out there. And we can test that on any horse, even foals. 
And our goal is then, as of now, as we follow these horses over time, of course, it's a 90% accuracy. So there's 10% that we're not accurate on that. So the horses that we are saying, yes, you are at high risk of development, and they are not getting it, and the horses that we said, nope, you are totally fine, and they do develop it, we want to look in those horses again why is our prediction not correct, right? What is something that we are missing here? And I think environment is something, again, that will come out of those. So because if we can say, hey, you need to not start training your horse until it's three-year-old instead of a two-year-old, that will help you. Or you need to make sure that, you know, you have a good body condition. You don't you know, make sure your horse is not overweight, which is always good for tendon injuries. I know in general and osteoarthritis. But if there are certain common denominators that we see, then we are identifying those risk factors again. And that, I think, is going to be important. So, we are testing right now. There are owners that are wanting us to test for Peruvian horses, and we are going to follow those horses longitudinally over time to see, you know, if there's anything that we did not accurately predict and why is that. Yeah, and so if, if owners wanted to access or if veterinarians wanted to access that risk factor assessment, is that something they can get from you or how would they... They can email me directly and we can, or you can uh, contact the lab. We have it all on, on our lab page, the comparative orthopedic lab, and you can look that up or I can send it to you uh, a link that you can put that, you know, in your podcast or anything like that. So, um, yeah, we have a Facebook page. Uh, the comparative orthopedic lab at the University of Wisconsin has a Facebook page and we are on that. The downside is right now because we the way the testing is that we have to have 96 horses uh, before we can send a plate in for prediction testing. And so we need to fill up a plate before we can test it. So you might not have the results back. Right now, it's four to six months before you'll have the results. But the more people, you know, want to get tested, the quicker we can send our plate to the lab. And then we can get the data back. And then we analyze the data and do our prediction test on it. So that is the thing that we are a little bit, I guess, slow on and it's not ideal, but we are working with the lab that uh, does all the DNA uh, sequencing for us to maybe get our own plates that are smaller once this gets going, because we also do a lot of research in dogs and do predicting testing in dogs. So if that is the case, then the turnaround time will not be as long. Oh, yeah, this is all like, honestly, so hopeful to me that there's so much research that's going into this right now, because it is an area that I have felt like has been difficult to, to figure out. So um, I really appreciate you being willing to answer all these questions and hop on a call with me, because I think this is amazing information that's going to help a lot of people and hopefully will, you know, help you if you can get more horses that can, can be in your um, research, you know? Yeah. Any horse, any breed, you know, if people think their horse is DSLD, you can contact me. Uh, my email Sabrina.Browns and spell B-R-O-U-N-T-S, my last name, at WISC.edu. So Sabrina.Browns at WISC.edu. And then we can go from there, see if your horse is eligible. If does it fit the, the scenario of DSLD, work with your vets. You know, like I said, before the horses are included, we have a very rigorous program that they have to, they have to take pictures. We want an ultrasound exam and all of that. And then we store their DNA. 
And then in time, like I said, um, we will look at other breeds, but the Peruvian horse is where we started, since that was a breed that saw a high prevalence of this disease. And there's, like I said, other breeds, like there's the warm blood, um, which is up and coming, as well as a high prevalence of this disease. But there's the warm blood is a little bit harder to look at as a breed because you know, the Peruvian is a nice breed. The Pasifino is a nice breed. The warm blood can be, you know, you've got Dutch warm bloods and German warm bloods and Irish warm bloods and French warm bloods and all of that. So it's a little harder to look at that breed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I already have some horses that I think, you know, might be a good match that I can talk to my veterinarian about. So that's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, the smaller the breed is and the more you know, exclusive, I would say the breed is. So the Ecoteki, for example, you don't see a lot of Ecoteki's. That's also a high risk breed. So, you know, that that's a breed again, that's very good that we can look into. The smaller, the less influence of other breeds is in that breed, the better it is for us to look at things. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to look at the warm blood because it is an up and coming in the warm blood as well, especially in certain families that we've noticed. And, you know, we want to see if what we find in the Peruvian horse is similar, comparable to the warm blood. And we have found in dogs, for example, in our lab that, you know, what you find in the Rottweiler might not always be the same in the Labrador or in the Golden Retriever. So that's Mm -hmm. why you have to be very careful with those making saying that, you know, what is okay for one breed is also going to be reflected in that other breed. Uh, No, no, it doesn't work that way in genetic research. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's so interesting that you're, you're looking at dogs, too. So there's that, you know, extra layer of complexity there, which is so cool. Yeah, we look at dogs. There is a prediction test right now for uh, anterior cruciate rupture in dogs that we are certain breeds that we are looking at in our lab and also for laryngeal paralysis in dogs. They're also looking into that. So uh, there's a test for that. So yeah, there are other diseases in small animal in our lab that we are looking at. Go to our website or to our Facebook page and you can see what's uh, what we're doing. Awesome. Well, I think this information will help a lot of people. So I really appreciate you doing this. Um, and I'm, I'm so thankful that you had the time to hop on the phone with me. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I of really course. enjoyed it. Awesome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.